0: Welcome back to the Barbell Medicine Pain and Rehab Podcast. I am one of your co-hosts, Dr. Michael Ray. I'm a chiropractor in Harrisonburg, Virginia, and then work remotely with Barbell Medicine's pain and rehab department. Joined with my two usual co-hosts, Dr. Michael Amato out at Boston and Dr. Derek Miles in Cincinnati, Ohio. How's it going, guys?
1: Good morning, Mike. Good morning. Anything new with you guys lately? Oh, um... Same old, same old, just trying to keep COVID out of the clinic, and which we did, seems like we're doing a pretty good job, and uh, yeah, just taking it day by day.
2: We had our uh, first snow in Cincinnati, so the first time I've lived in a place with snow in, uh, I believe, 16 years, so that was fun. Oh, wow. oh man. It's, it's too soon. Yeah, we had oh. snow
1: the day the day before Thanksgiving. No, day before Halloween. So we we've already had our first snow.
0: I'm holding out. I I I think we can make it to January without snow in Virginia. I'm hoping.
2: Yeah, we'll see how it goes.
1: <laughs> I'm 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 expecting just anything at this point. with the the way 2020 has gone.
0: Yeah. Yeah, well, we were just saying, like, hoop is on the horizon, right, with uh, the U.K. rolling out. I think it's the Pfizer vaccine.
1: Yeah, so there's some there's a glimmer if we can just kind of stick it out for the next few weeks. It, it's
0: been strange, man. I was driving into the clinic this morning, and I had uh, the radio on, and, like, Christmas music came on. And it was like, oh, yeah, like, it's <laughs> it's coming up on Christmas.
1: I mean, with online shopping, though, I feel like people can kind of just do their normal thing and and then you just send people I guess
0: yeah oh that's yeah you could just like mail it directly to them I exactly. didn't even think of
1: that yeah that's probably what I'm gonna do with my parents
0: that's a good idea actually yeah so yeah it just seems surreal uh so here's hoping 2021 is a better year just in case uh if this is our last podcast of 2020 which it may be
1: yeah it could possibly be
2: so the topic of the day
0: Yeah, man. I was drinking some coffee. caught me in between drinks. Um, So we're supposed to talk about exercise prescription for the individual today. Um, And I think this is going to be a really important podcast overall for like future references because we want to keep it very pragmatic. Um, This is a discussion that comes up regularly with us, especially not only in our our own clinic work, but then also with the remote work with Barbell Medicine. And uh, I know personally, I hear all the time, uh, people especially will read, like, the uh, the really good article that Alston did, Pain and Training, What Do? And they're like, well, I implemented all of these things, and I'm still not, quote-unquote, getting better, uh, which oftentimes for us with barbell medicine is, like, some type of training parameter, right? And I'm like, well, what did you do? And, they're, and let's say it's, like, a low back pain case, and they've been having symptoms with uh, deadlift. And they're like, well, I regressed the weight down. And I was, I was trying to do a top set of six uh, and I'm like, well, what weight did you use? And I'm like, well, 135. Uh, And I'm like, well, you know, there's a lot of numbers in between zero and 135 pounds. Like, and so I think we really just wanted to do this podcast to kind of give a little bit more nuance to exercise prescription for the individual, especially as it relates to like dealing
2: with symptomatic experiences. Mm -hmm. Well, I think a lot of times, things get distilled down. And at a certain point of distillation, it loses a little bit of its original meaning. And what gets said a lot of times is, okay, well, we just need to adjust the load and adjust your stance or, you know, something of that nature, your grip on the bar. And that's not incorrect, but there's a lot of layers to that. And I think a lot of times we end up answering a lot of questions, either on the forum or Facebook pages that end up, even though you're giving accurate advice, it's hard to make it individualized to the person because there are just so many factors related to where they are in their own training process and their own journey.
1: Yeah. And I I feel like on top of that, having the structure in place and then projecting it over a longer timescale can sometimes be lost if you're tweaking things on the fly yourself and not maybe taking a big picture view at it and having someone help you with that process.
0: Yeah, I think that helps huge, right? Because you can be like in it, in the situation of trying to go through this process and implement general recommendations that we often give on the forum or on on blog posts. And it's hard to like step away from the situation because you're so close to it and realize like, oh, I have all these other parameters I could be changing or even um, a lot of times it's just expectations too, because I'll often talk to folks and they're like, well, I thought I'd be done with this in four weeks. And I'm like, yeah, well, Mm -hmm. you know, every individual tends to go through this a little bit differently. Uh, We have some general parameters to go by, but it may take six or eight and that's okay.
2: Mm -hmm. Well, and I think that's an important point as well is, you know, even if we're going as by the research as possible and talking about like 12-week protocols for tendinopathy, it depends on where that individual person is. And it's really hard to ballpark these Really explicit, where well, we're going to return to doing whatever this timeline phases.
0: Yeah, I, I often joke, like when I get asked that question, especially in clinic, I'm like, well, let me go get my magic eight ball and like shake this, and we'll find out like when we're done with this process. And it's just like, you know, giving insight to it's a really big unknown. We have some very general parameters to go by, especially if we're talking like acute trauma based issues with like physiological healing of tissue. But outside of that, it's a difficult thing to say because we just don't know how quickly an individual will progress or should progress through the experience.
1: Mm. And it's very, right. like, Go ahead, Imano. I was going to say it's very specific to what the definition of like success and goals are from that individual. So someone who's dealing with Achilles tendinopathy who runs but then someone else who doesn't run you're looking at a different timeline and a different definition of what you know successful rehab looks like to them
2: and i think it's even worth mentioning there that there's a lot of layers to even defining what an injury is and a lot of times i'll have athletes ask me when will this be healed and there's often kind of a discrepant answer to that between when tissue healing takes place and when people are feeling good and and it goes in both directions a lot of times in post-operative constraints you'll have people that are feeling relatively normal and feel like they could go back to sport even though the quote-unquote healing related to their surgery certainly shouldn't give them that type of full clearance Mm -hmm. and then On the other side of the spectrum, when we're talking about something possibly like a tendinopathy, where if you look at it as far as like the structural side of it, you're okay to push it sometimes. It's not like you're really doing harm to the tissue itself specifically. But that being said, like it still has to be caveated with how much do we push this? And and that really is one of the individualized side of it is, getting to know the person and kind of their own training philosophy and variables involved and how much that we can push into it versus how much we need to back off of it. And to go back to kind of a theme that we've talked about a few times on different podcasts, sometimes remembering that there is more to life than squat bench and deadlift and it is okay to go do some different exercises. And I think when it comes to the individualized side of it, it really gets into do we need to work through this problem or do we need to work around this problem? And sometimes when offering really general advice, not being able to answer that question makes the general advice seem a little laissez-faire instead of like actually applicable to what's going on.
0: Yeah, we, we have this conversation a lot, uh, especially when it comes to like Facebook responses or forum posts. And it's like, here's some super general advice that I would tell almost anyone in in these types of situations, you know, how if this gets you from where you're at to where you want to be is a different discussion, because I don't think people realize, um, especially when it comes to exercise prescription, right, how much gray there is, and then also how much leeway you have, like there's no and I find myself saying this a lot uh, within the barbell medicine realm, there is no perfect dosage of activity. Like we have really broad guidelines like with the World Health Organization's recent release of physical activity guidelines, but that's not even in the context of like symptomatic experiences. And so we don't know like uh, what's the ideal way to get you from where you're at to where you want to be. We probably have an idea of like what's a better way to do it versus like a bunch of passive modalities versus active rehab. But outside of that, there's a lot of different pathways you can take to get to where you want to be, um, and that's the individual aspect of this. But it also is the part where it really helps to have a coach kind of guiding this process with you.
1: Yeah, because I'll, I'll often paint too, like especially in the the BBM route, because we're maybe a little bit more limited in what I can maybe objectively test in person. Is like the rehab process being a feedback loop upon itself. So like I want to know exactly kind of where to start but then like each week we're building off feedback from the previous week and i think that's where having that other person um helping guide you helps kind of like like collect that information and distill it to what's important and then make decisions based on that and when yeah. you're i think that's what kind of gets lost definitely in the self management if the self management isn't going well Um, you know, what information are they gathering that's helping make them make decisions going forward?
2: When sometimes it even just goes to the next level of, is this normal? And we get a lot of athletes who may perform a workout and the real question is, is what I'm feeling a normal part of this process? And it's hard to kind of broad frame answer that just in a Facebook post or whatever. I need to know a little bit more about your training background and what you know in order to answer that correctly. And the issue is it does become a little bit of a problem on when it should be you know, just us providing information on the forum or on Facebook pages versus an actual consult itself, because it goes both ways. Sometimes you'll have an individual give a basic dissertation on their history of training and that's awesome. But at a certain point, um, I have my own clients that I need to go address. And if you're seeking that level of information, you're probably better off becoming one of our clients.
0: Yeah. I don't, um, I think it was Austin and I were talking about this maybe, I can't recall, but uh, it was something to the effect of like, no one, it's very rare you're going to find someone giving individualized advice for free. Uh, Like that's just not something that typically happens because you want our attention and focus directed at you and we want to give you that time. And so just because of the natural society we find ourselves in, like you have to elicit some type of fee system to get that because if we're doing it a lot for free, if we're taking time away from the clients who are paying us, who are getting our individual attention. So, uh, that's kind of like just a, a side rant on that. I think, um, we're going to have to give some context because I've, I've been on podcasts recently where people, uh, and done and done lectures where people really like to ask these hypothetical situations. And I'm like, man, this is so hard to answer, right? Because I can say something uh, as a blanket statement, I have no idea how the individual is going to respond. So I think if we give kind of some context to this discussion, uh, it'll help people see how we think through these processes of exercise prescription. But with the understanding, like the caveat to this discussion today is we have no idea how this hypothetical human is going to respond because we're not interacting with them directly. So let's go through some of the, go ahead, Derek. I was going to ask, do you want to do a case? Yeah, I was going to say, let's frame up the um, parameters of like, when we think about exercise prescription, what does that mean? What are the parameters we're trying to manipulate to kind of get the outcomes we're looking for until Amato's point, like, Uh, Our assumption here, as far as healing or outcomes, is reduce symptomatic symptomatic experience with provocative movements and return to desired activity goals. That's kind of how we're going to have to – we have to frame it like that because we don't have the individual in front of us to tell us what healing means to them. So hopefully that makes sense. So the dosage variables – just to go through these briefly, when we think about this stuff for return to activity is going to be mode. So, so what is the type of activity they're trying to go back to? Is it resistance training? Is it barbell specific resistance training? Is it, I just want to go in and be able to do uh, a machine-based exercise for all major muscle groups, which is totally cool. Is it uh, CrossFit? Is it cycling? Is it running? Like all of this will change all the other parameters. So what is the mode of activity we're trying to return to? Frequency would be the number of times the activity is being completed throughout the week, so number of days or number of training sessions. Volume uh, will play into how many sets and reps are we completing for a particular activity. If you're kind of taking this into context of like endurance-based activities, volume can be a factor of time. It also could be a factor of distance. Intensity for the resistance training-focused people, um, and you guys will quickly see how complex this can get, intensity would be Either the internal intensity or internal load. So for us, we often talk about RPE and RIR. Um, and then this also could be the load being lifted. Uh, if you're dealing with endurance based uh, athletes, let's say cycling intensity, intensity could be also a factor of time. So what's your pacing and how quickly did you get a mile done? But then it also could be a factor of terrain. So is there a lot of gradient changes? Are you on a trail versus road? Uh, duration would then be how long did the activity last. And so this would be a time factor and the sense of was a single session, uh, 60 minutes for that particular session, which makes uh, probably a lot more sense to folks in the, in the uh, endurance realm versus resistance training. And you can also think of duration as well as how long did this particular uh, block of training last? Was this a three month block type thing? Do you guys have anything to add? I know that's a pretty quick like cover of those factors.
2: No, I think it's worth mentioning right there that we've already entered in five different variables. So, you know, there's a lot that can change, and and sometimes those changes are subtle along the way. But it's not just modify one thing and see if we can get you to calm down. Whereas it is that often, but you know, there's there's layers to it.
1: Yeah, and I often find that. Sometimes with the rehab process, you have to help anchor or define different internal intensities for the individual. Um, Because what they're used to when they were performance training may differ now that they're rehab training. Let's just call it that. So reps and reserve or RPE might take on a new flavor in the context of rehab. Yeah.
0: Do you want to um, talk about that? Because I think we all have a similar approach to what RPE means or RIR means when we're in the symptomatic experience.
1: Yeah, and like I, I'll tweak it sometimes depending on what the person maybe needs. But in general, where I'm thinking rep, RPE and reps in reserve, where they correlate in terms of a rehab approach, is like a 10-RPE uh, is like the cap for what is tolerable or what would be uh, like an unproductive symptomatic uh, set in a way. So if I'm prescribing something as like a 7 RPE, I'm saying like leave three reps in the tank, but three reps in the tank that you're working within your tolerance. So not like a three rep in reserve, like true fatigue, like max out, I'm going to fail that like that fourth rep. um. And that's where I think, like, other constraints in the programming help a lot. Because once you add things like tempo to a movement, then it's like, if I'm saying a 7 RPE for this tempo movement, it means can you perform three more reps at that tempo without starting to, like, speed up the movement or change however, whatever mode I picked. So I think from the rehab perspective is like, again, can you keep those reps in reserve, but in respect to symptoms and the constraints of the individual exercise.
0: Yeah, I think the, the, the big layer that gets missed sometimes is when people hear us talk about uh, these auto-regulatory tools in the context of symptoms is, to me, the rate limiter, is, which is the best way I can think of putting this, is your symptomatic experience. So a seven, uh, to what you were saying, Amato, isn't necessarily based on just fatigue, you may hit a seven because your symptomatic experience is limiting you from going on, even if you know, like, and I hear this all the time, especially remotely with barbell medicine is, well, I know that's not a true seven, I could have easily hit, you know, 25% more weight at a a seven. Uh, And that's what I've done previously. And I'm like, well, I get that. But we're not in that previous situation. And we're now dealing with symptoms, which is going to be our limiting factor for this, this process right now.
2: I often frame it through the could should phenomenon because a lot of times when we talk about RPE, we talk about could you do three more reps or could you do two more reps? And a better frame is often should I do two more reps or should I do three more reps? Because a lot of times we we know what's a bad decision, but we often kind of push past it. And I think I've said before, one of my favorite questions to ask people in training is, do you think that's a good idea? And because a lot of people are aware when we're kind of getting into that gray zone of we're probably doing something that may not be in our best interest. And having that frame difference between could and should tends to be a good way of governing it in. I mean, one thing that I think is true across endurance and resistance training, if you really look at the literature, is to be really successful. It's not going to war. It's getting good at the boring stuff. Mm -hmm. And yeah if you look at kind of the area under a curve of overall training, it's accumulating a lot of like mid-level tonnage or mid-level mileage. It's not going out and going ham every day. Like we don't need to paint our face like the ultimate warrior and go in shaking barbells. No,
1: (laughs) I think I have a good example of myself. Like I think two weeks ago, like I had a low back flare up uh, prior to like a test week. And, it was, and we were already trying to be conservative with my deadlift test because of prior symptoms. And so the prescription was a single at eight, and that was going to be, like, my soft test. And um, I talked to my coach, and we we went, we went into the week saying, like, I'll just be conservative and just take singles, like, all the way up, like, three, four, five, six, seven RPE until I feel like I'm reaching what I think is a tolerable eight And so what I ended up moving was probably more of a single at six from like a fatigue and velocity standpoint. But what I felt was like if I had done two more reps, which would have been like my RP8, I would have probably regretted it. And that would have put me in a worse situation for the next training block in terms of starting it off more symptomatic and less uh, like load tolerant. So I took it there and then we had the discussion like, the bar still moved well it felt good like slight symptoms but now i get to start the next block in a better position rather than just like putting 25 more pounds in the bar and showing myself that i could hit it but with symptoms so yeah it's you know that's a hard thing to kind of like distill to a general approach but that was like the individual decision making process like in that moment
0: well, I think a lot of like what both of you guys are talking about, is it's mindset, right? And I don't know how beneficial I'm going to war, you know, put on my, my gear and paint my face mindset is for training even outside of symptoms, but certainly once we're in the symptomatic experience. Um, and so it's like, and I have, uh, and I'm sure all of us have this conversation regularly with folks. I'm like, well, part of training in general, and I find myself asking uh, people this all the time, especially in symptomatic experiences, like, what is your why? for being physically active. And I get that maybe more meta than a lot of people want to get into. But I'm like, we probably need to answer this question because if the why is, what's the load I'm lifting? What's the mileage I'm getting per week? And that's all that matters. Then we we probably need to reframe, you know, what is training to you and why are you engaging in that process? Because that's probably uh, a very easy way to hit burnout, right? Is like the only metric that matters is an objective metric and nothing Mm -hmm. else. And we forget about, the subjective part, your enjoyment of the activity is going to really matter for, uh, especially an adherence standpoint, which that's ultimately what I'm concerned with just from a health perspective, is that I talk to you in five and ten years and you're still enjoying some type of activity and still engaging the activity. And I don't know how beneficial that, like, we're going to war and all that matters is loads being lifted mentality will benefit us in the long run. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, I think it's also worth kind of parsing out, Or is an athlete better off getting in five days of consistent sub-threshold training or going in on Monday and now kicking their coverage and not being able to train for seven days? Right. And that really is what a lot of this comes down to is, you know, consistency tends to beat intensity in most instances. And it it is – getting good at doing the boring stuff. And that's also where a coach comes into play because sometimes you need, you know, that person on the sidelines cheering you on a little bit versus once again, going in like it's the biggest day of your life when you have a top single at eight, like in right now, especially with people's training being highly, highly modified due to the pandemic, like, I've had many athletes who I coach get into the, well, this just isn't as fun anymore with a lot of the stress that I have in my life. And it's okay. What can we change to make it more fun? It's not necessarily you need to stop training. It's there is literally a thousand ways to do this. Maybe we should talk about picking up a new skill. Have you ever thought about learning a kettlebell swing? Like have you ever thought about an exercise that isn't squat bench deadlift, Like, in you know, in even with my own programming, uh, I went through a little bit of a phase after moving here where it just wasn't as fun. And I switched my metric for the week to tonnage over E1RM because I found it a lot easier to talk myself into doing some extra sets at a like lower RPE weight than trying to top in my weight. And Mm. on Friday, my workouts end up being just like, okay, where was I at for tonnage on deadlift last week? Let's see if I can beat that by a little bit.
1: Yeah. It's kind of like, have you read a lot of Dan John stuff? Oh, yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I feel like
1: his description of like, is this a park bench workout or a bus bench workout?
0: Yeah. And oh,
1: I'm, I'm interested. What does that mean? So, like, he talks about, he talks about like training almost like in seasons, how like almost like phasing throughout the year. And he ties it to sometimes like the actual like weather. But um, one of his other descriptors is like, we all kind of have like phases where, we're more in a park bench situation where we're just kind of like chilling, sitting on the bench and enjoying kind of like the view and the surroundings. And you're like, just, you're in the park and like enjoying the park. And then a bus bench workout or like a bus bench phase would be like, you're sitting at that bench, but you have a place that you're going. So you're not, you're not like you have, you're more like on a mission. And yeah. your are uh, that session or that phase has a direct focus in like progressing performance. And I think everyone probably, everyone knows they go through those phases, but maybe they're, like, trying to make the park bench the bus bench when they shouldn't. And uh, just kind of accepting that and kind of, like, getting in the work, enjoying it. And, you know, when it's time to push, then, like, maybe you're more motivated or more enjoyable of the experience.
2: That's a cool analogy. I like that. Yeah. Well, I think even beyond that, it's having that discussion of like, where are you as an athlete? Because in today's society, a lot of people end up comparing themselves to like the point oh 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 one percent Whereas if you look at an individual who's training and even has a body weight deadlift, you're probably in the 95th percentile. Yeah. And I think that gets lost on a lot of individuals because we're just so used to seeing those individuals who are at the very extremes now. Yeah. and it like if your goal is to have a 600 pound deadlift that's an awesome goal but why like why is that your goal is it just yeah. to turn that number or is it because you think something magical is going to happen upon getting 600 pounds and yeah. I can tell you what that magical thing is going to be you're going to jump up and down for five minutes and you're going to be like, well, I want six oh five. Six oh five. five. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, that's like spending time with gen pop is like, is a good re-anchoring experience. Cause like when you, once you get someone deadlifting like a hundred pounds in the clinic, they're like, mind explodes. They're like, really? really? I just lifted a hundred pounds. I'm like, yeah. You know, and that, that like joy or that like astonishment from something where in the powerlifting world, you know, the bar doesn't, the bar starts at one thirty five. Um It's cool to see.
0: I think uh, you know it really hits at just enjoying the process more than anything than the destination, which are similar conversations like I think we've all had over the years about knowledge acquisition, like just enjoying the process of learning versus like rushing to some end destination, like a degree. Mm. And so I think if people can adopt that mindset, it works out really well in the long run. Now we're not saying um, you're always going to enjoy every single aspect of your training, and because consistently, uh, consistency, as Derek said earlier, is ultimately absolutely what matters as well, in addition to uh, enjoyment and effectiveness. But there are going to be phases in which you're like, man, I'm just going through the motions. And that's normal. Like, I don't think uh, any athlete ever would be like, I enjoyed 100% of every aspect of training and competition throughout my entire career. Mm -hmm. Like that just doesn't happen. But if the goal is if your why of training is, especially just enjoying the process of being active, it is perfectly okay to change that mode variable to something else. Like it is not set in stone that you forever can only lift barbells and that's all that matters in the world, right?
1: Yes, I agree.
0: So let's do uh, some case context stuff here. And uh, I think maybe just from a time ex- expediency standpoint, we'll just do like two two cases here. Mm. And so uh, usually when I think about this, uh, you have like, your post-operative case uh, would be one kind of uh, spectrum point, and then you have your kind of persistent symptoms like low back pain as your other spectrum point. Um, and that's probably the best I can like, in my mind, frame up this discussion. Are you guys okay with that?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that sounds good.
0: So let's start with the what's considered more of an acute trauma case, which is a post-surgical case. So I, you've literally had a surgical incision into your knee or your shoulder. So let's start there. So you're... Um, And and Derek, I I feel like you'll do well taking point with this. But your, you know, day one post-op, let's say ACL reconstruction, just to like really hone in on a context here. What's your process? um, And you can obviously expand this out into just general approach post-operative cases. But what's your process from that standpoint, like you see them day one post-op?
2: One of the biggest things, especially, and this is really where having a clinician with experience with the surgical procedure comes in handy, is setting expectations with the individual. And it is, this is what you should expect to happen. This is what our initial goals are. These are our moderate phase goals. These are the hurdles you can expect along the way. And then going back to what I said earlier of training through versus training around in the initial post-operative phase, a lot of times rehab professionals end up thinking about the surgery as just one joint and they forget they have a full athlete sitting in front of them. And the ultimate question comes down to how do I keep you athletic within the constraints you currently have? And a lot of this is contingent upon, access to a gym, the equipment within that gym, what your motivation is as an athlete. And there are boxes that we often need to check to really facilitate like return to prior level. And sometimes those boxes are even outside the constraints of what the athlete really wants. Um, If we're going to talk in some instances, um, it really comes down to a mix of are you conditioned enough, Are you strong enough and have we done enough skill training for the specific sport you're trying to go back to? And sometimes where that enough line of demarcation is, is a little bit different to the individual athlete versus the practitioner, because really I want to make sure that there is a reserve in that enough category sufficient to where you can go out and test your limits. And, we may be doing some exercises that are a little more on what we would call the non-traditional side because I either have some weight-bearing precautions or I want to control for what's going on at a certain joint along the way, and it, it is highly individualized. Even though, like, if you look at it, it often really is the same. And it, I've joked before that some of my post-operative algorithm is how or can I squat you. If yes, let's go to squat. If no, what do I need to do to get you there? And that second part of it really parses out a, a lot of the what steps do I need to take to keep you in condition and keep you as strong as you can under the constraints of the current surgical procedure.
0: Yeah, and I think that's a great summation. You also did a really good article that's on Barwell Medicine's website that like goes through post-operative. Knee rehab cases. And so, you know, expectations is very much the first step in that process. And then usually um, it's looking at, you know, we're going to have to get back some type of range of motion right to that joint just because it's automatically going to have reduction, most likely, based on the surgical procedure, and then getting back strength and function to that body region and then getting back to sports-specific activities. And um, that's kind of like the general approach right is what we're looking at from a post-operative case. Now there's obviously check boxes we're looking for along the way as far as from a recovery standpoint but it, it's really hard to say like um, how quickly you're going to expedite through that process like there's um, kind of like generalities, but the individual is really the different factor
2: there right Well and it's interesting that you made that point I think it's worth mentioning because you'll see a lot of this push towards fancy stuff in the early phases. And they'll cite research. It's like, well, they got to whatever variable at four weeks a day faster than individuals who didn't use it. And like, that's cool. Well, your rehab is at least four months. So I don't know that I need to necessarily break out this fancy thing to earn myself a day. And you can really extrapolate that into like training philosophy in general. Like, yes, there are tricks I can do to get you to jump a little bit higher right now or have a little bit of range of motion increase right now. But a lot of that stuff is transient and the summation of these transient improvements often doesn't manifest as something that is permanent later on.
0: Yeah, I think it goes back to that. Uh, can versus should discussion, right? Like just because I can do something, is it meaningful in long-term outcomes? And do I need to do that something? Um, and I think that's a great, great way to look at it. And so um, is there anything else that you think is important for people to realize? Cause I, it's, I don't think people understand how difficult it is. Like if you have, let's say, cause it's just a, uh, a good context, like an ACL reconstruction for someone who's just trying to get back to normal daily activities And then versus someone who's trying to get back to high level, like D1 athletics, like that, those are very different, not very different, but and they have some similarities, but the end point is a bit uh,
2: different that greatly alters kind of prescription in the long run, wouldn't you say? Oh, yes. Um, And really to that conversation, you still need to check the same boxes, but it it really comes down to the magnitude with which we need to be checking them. And this even gets at where, having online consultations can come in very handy because a lot of times, even in the concierge PT where it's one-on-one for an hour, if you're a high-level athlete used to two hours of practice a day, I don't care what I'm going to accomplish in an hour. It's insufficient for what you need as an athlete. And being able to write out a long-form program that you can go to the gym and accomplish with still some oversight it is a an advantageous way to approach it and let's say in the later phases your workout needs to consist of 30 minutes of low intensity steady state cardio an hour of lifting and 20 minutes of agility work like if you're if you have an hour to train well that box ain't big enough yeah yeah
0: I, I, i completely agree like i think that's where like uh, you know, obviously, shameless self plug, but our services can help out a lot with remote work and the way we're set up, and um, outside of the typical like constraints, you'll see seeing someone in, um, like directly in person, oftentimes. So ultimately, like the the things that are manipulating exercise prescription in this regard, it, what is our endpoint? What are we trying to get to? And then, how is the individual responding to that process while respecting physiological healing? parameters and time points. Just because you are a post-operative situation, we know that there's various healing phases we need to go to in regards to healing being defined as physiological tissue recovery. Is there anything else you want to add to that case context before we move on to the next?
2: No, I think that covers most of it. I think the point you made about healing should really be well adapted because there are certain things that we know like religmatization in ACL takes between yeah. eight and twelve months. And so we likely don't really need to be doing a lot of things to really stress that tissue in particular through that time frame. But that still means that there are hundreds of thousands of other ways with which we can train to keep you as athletic and hopefully more athletic than you were prior to injuring yourself during the rehabilitation process leading up to that.
0: Yeah. So there's, uh, there's obviously a lot of layers to that conversation, and we've even done previous podcasts specific to this situation. So be sure to go check out the prior uh, post-operative podcast we did for the knee. The next case, um, and, and it, again, we're siloing this discussion between like acute versus persistent, and I'm not a fan of it, but it's the best we got when we're trying to have these complex conversations would be an example of, uh, something we often see at barbell medicine, which is a resistance training focused athlete, barbell based, who is experiencing some persistent low back pain symptoms. And their, their goal is I want to return back to, uh, SBD, right. Doing squat bench press deadlift variations. Mm-hmm. And they're just trying to figure out like, how do I get through that process to get back there? And I think we'll probably be able to hit some of our social, social media curated questions here. Cause I think they're very applicable to this discussion. What is you guys' process for? You're now consulting with this individual, and they're like, "I'm just trying to get back to squat, bench press, and deadlift, but I've been having low back pain symptoms on and off for the past two years. And I can't seem to get this situation under control. What is your kind of your approach, kind of systematically to that process?
2: Well, the f- th- first thing is really trying to find. Well, aside from rolling out things that would. Make the person need to go for mm-hmm. further evaluation. Um, mm-hmm. Assuming all of that is fine, it really is finding that entry point. And if it's this persistent low back pain that's been there for a while, sometimes it's having the discussion about which exercises do hurt and which ones work. And we're likely going to start focusing on some of those things that work a little bit better and then modifying some of the ones that are having problems with. And it may be that we don't need a low bar back squat for a little while, but we can, you know, get a safety squat bar out or we can pin squat or we can split squat. Mm -hmm. And I think in there, it still kind of gets back to the individualized side of it because there is the like, does the athlete like this exercise and is going to be adherent to it? And I can lay out the best design plan in the world. And if I can't convince you to do it, then I didn't do a very good job. And I think a lot of times that's the thing that gets lost on clinicians is um, sometimes we're better at convincing people of the plan than actually having a good plan. And that actually, it tends to be the more important part of it. And, I think um, once you kind of find that entry point, it's expanding from there. A lot of times I'll have conversations with athletes about, okay, so we need to drop heavy squats for a little while. Well, if we're dropping that let's add in a little bit lateral with some different exercises. So we may not be squatting, but we're still accumulating some lower extremity volume out of it. And then once we can start adding it in or getting back into heavy squats, we can start paring away those things we added to the side. But I think a lot of times in rehab, there's this propensity to like give these what I'm going to call just blatantly stupid exercises that hang around for all of eternity. And the question should also be like, how long do you need to be doing these things?
1: Yeah, I, I, I mean, if we're gonna and if, if we focus on the barbell athlete, I the way I kind of think about it is really similarly and how, almost like how do you. Create repeated exposures that have like a positive training adaptation, but also like a positive experience from them. And it c- gives you just more open ended options for what you're going to implement with training. So it doesn't have to look like a certain thing, but if we can still like bend your knees and move load, bend your hips and move load, bend your spine and move load, we can be a little bit more open ended in how we approach that. and. I will tend to stick to certain variations and certain volume parameters and certain intensity parameters probably longer than what they would have thought they needed to do and just kind of guide that and be like, we're going to stick here. And, we're gonna, and even if it feels good and it's going well, that's more inclination maybe just to like hold there for a little while before we make the push forward.
2: Well, and even beyond that, I think, you know, one of the things that I've said a lot of times in terms of like the youth training side of things is I feel that a lot of the environment with which kids participate in sports is too sterile now because everyone's on a like perfectly irrigated field with quarter inch grass <laughs> with a FIFA 11 ball and. Now, like, in the same regard, you get the athletes that are like, well, I have to have my Alico bar and calibrated plates. <laughs> my belt that's been broken in for 237 days with my quarter-inch platform uh, Romelos. And the platform actually needs to be comprised of birch because cedar and pine will certainly not do. And you're like, well, dude, like, you're not training at this point. You're putting on a fashion show. <laughs> And I feel I feel attacked right now. <laughs> I, I did that just
0: for you. Um,
1: I always love the hanging plant in Mike's yeah. new videos.
0: That's yes. a very nice touch. That that totally goes. This is way off topic, but that totally goes <laughs> to my wife's credit. Uh, she's done a phenomenal job. Yeah.
2: Well, but really, the more we look at the evolution of physical activity guidelines and advocating for people to get more active, it really increasingly shows it. Without sounding too much like a nihilist, like I normally do, like it doesn't matter what you do. Yeah. Like, if, if you need this like beautiful, fancy bar or these like spectacular within a half a gram calibrated plates. Like, go do stuff. Last Wednesday, I helped a friend move and we took an entire like 20 foot U haul and unloaded it. And one of the objects was like a 600 pound piano. I didn't feel compelled to go squat after that. <laughs> I felt dragging that thing off the U-Haul and managing to not damage it, that counted as a pretty good training session.
0: That's the stressful part right there, not damaging yeah. it.
2: Yeah, you want to talk about some external stress. But yeah. I think that gets lost on us, like, too often right now. It's like we look through that window and we see the closed sign on the gym and the weight's just sitting there not getting used, and we forget that, like, it's a 1200 square foot gym. There's literally an entire world to go interact with and do some random things outside of that.
1: Yeah. And and this goes like maybe more into like my clinic my clinic experience, but with more gen pop or someone who doesn't have specific goals of returning to powerlifting even with powerlifters. I'll have them like and I steal this from like other people like Ben Cormac um where you like you're playing with movement more and cuz if you look at the little back I mean if you look at the low back pain research, and we talked about this before, there doesn't seem to be a mode of exercise that is, like, far superior. So, you know, like, introducing aerobic conditioning or just doing, like, we we play with things sometimes. Like, we'll just have, like, Swiss ball, like, like, tossing sessions where we're just, like, moving oddly. I'll have them catch, like, a falling foam roller, which is, like, the only thing we use the foam rollers for in our clinic, and just get them to be reactive and not think about the movement in, like, a very pre-planned way. And I'm not saying like that's the whole, you know, 45-minute session, but we're maybe doing, like, you know, 10 minutes of that just to, like, have them be a little bit different with their movement.
0: Yeah, I think people, um, I mean, this goes back to the, the why. Like, why are you being active? What are we trying to accomplish here? And ideally, that's just not load being lifted is all that matters. And to both of your, your points, because um, we say things like general, general population all the time, I think um, barbell medicine is very much uh, in a bubble, and it's an awesome bubble. We have a lot of people motivated to be active in resistance training. But when we look at data, like on you know, who's meeting physical activity guidelines, uh, especially in America, you know, less than, uh, I think it's only 23%, if I recall correctly, that are actually meeting both guidelines of conditioning, aerobic activity, as well as resistance training. And so that's a huge percentage of people that aren't being active at all. And that doesn't mean then that they're not dealing with, you know, persistent low back pain symptoms because we know that data as well. And, you know, that's a a pretty large percentage of the population also. So it's like if we're dealing with someone who's in the context of resistance training with barbell-based training, it's working through, um, you know, why are you doing this activity? And then how do we find tolerable doses of activity? And probably framing away from just chasing numbers constantly and more enjoying the process. But then if we take that out of that, Context, which is our common herbal medicine context, to the general population, like you're talking about Amato, it's just like can we get you to do some activity to tolerance, and that really can be any activity that you enjoy. And, and the research uh, is is muddy as hell when it comes to looking at dosage of activity, and then also the the quality of the evidence we're examining. But what it what it is clear on is that the uh, mode and then dosage is. is fairly um, uh, non-meaningful in the context of beyond the individual. So there's no generalizability. It's just how do we get you active, and then how can we do it to tolerance, and then how do we build from there based on activities you want to engage with, which could just be walking, which is a totally awesome you know, mode of physical activity. Guys have anything to add to that
1: yeah and it's not to down downplay again like the specific parameters that we've discussed already when there is a goal of a desired activity so again i think with with more of a barbell training and spd like i said i'm okay with like trying to find those exposures that are tolerable and productive and sticking to that for a while and i think with like recent Evidence or at least, like, recent narratives around, you know, you don't need to, like we talked about, you know, work up to an RPE 9 every session to get productive training. I I see a little bit easier of uh, a transition from rehab to performance in terms of, like, actually we can be pretty productive in a lower RPE range as long as we're, like, doing enough work and that enough is a little bit of a loose term, but, um, usually that just means like, are we being progressive over time? And I have these conversations with more of like client to client, but I'm looking like, are we building week to week? Are we getting closer to feeling like you're fatiguing during a workout and not just, you know, managing symptoms? And and that's like a a good sign for me as we kind of push back into more of a performance realm.
0: So let's go through some of these social media questions because um, I think it will give further like, context to these discussions on both of these cases. How much pain should I tolerate before switching movements?
2: It depends on you, and, and this really gets back to the individualized part of it. I don't think there's an inherent right answer to that. And it also is all contingent on the injury. Like sometimes yeah. I think pain is a very good signal that you likely shouldn't be doing that yet. Like in the instance of a a post-strain rehab, I'm not likely to have an athlete really push in to that much. But once again, if it's more of a a tendinopathy type diagnosis, I'm likely more okay with working through it for a little while. And, And this gets back to that. Do I need to work around or do I need to work through? Amato, anything
1: to add? Yeah, I I I might sound like a broken record, but um no, I think it's like again what Derek said, uh, is it specific to the injury and then once we get beyond that, um if it's more non-specific, you know, how how are we feeling after the session and going into the next session? Um, cuz if we if it dissipates and we can build upon it, then I'm okay with that. But if it seems like we're trending downward over the individual sessions and weeks, then maybe we need to make a change.
0: Yeah, I think, broadly speaking, people are probably familiar familiar with, um, you know, some of the content we've put out where we talk about, you know, load management being changing the volume and intensity specifically, um, and then maybe changing range of motion and then changing the exercise altogether. And so I think if we're in non-trauma situations, just generally speaking, um, then you could go through that process of, like, how do I adjust loading from a volume and intensity standpoint, which could be, you know, not hitting... Triples at an RPE eight, but maybe I'm hitting uh, six or eight reps for an RPE six to seven. And that's okay because remember, the process is ultimately what matters. If you go through that stuff and you're still like, man, this is just not really improving from week to week, then I'm totally cool with just taking movements out. That's not a big deal. Again, ultimately, what matters in these contexts is that we're keeping you active throughout the process. Um, intolerance is a a weird discussion because uh, to Derek's point, some of that is going to be related to physiological tissue healing. And should we be doing what we're attempting? But then also it's related to your experience from the standpoint of some individuals probably can tolerate more activity or load to the area. And we probably shouldn't be doing that just because we can. And then others may have a lower tolerance level. So the individual is the kind of murky aspect of this discussion. And that's what helps working with the coach is having that ability to kind of go through these conversations. Um, I, I have that, uh, kind of one liner of like tolerance would just mean that you're not feeling debilitated during or after activity and debilitated being defined as your attention's not constantly focused on, you know, a body region where you're experiencing symptoms and, or you feel unable to do activities you were doing with minimal to no issue prior to, um, probably like the most general and the easiest way to put it, but much harder to put into practice. For an already strong person who experiences acute low back pain, how much pain and exercise is okay? Which I think we all kind of already answered that. Is there anything you guys would add to this discussion?
2: I I don't really want to go down to what constitutes a strong person. I knew Derek. I I thought that well. Uh, I mean, I hate strong and weak. It's are you strong enough to do what you're trying to do? So if you're framing this question, the answer to me would be nope.
0: Yeah. Well, I don't think it's such a popular, these are popular terms in like the fitness world, right? Uh, And I don't think people realize how arbitrary they really are beyond the individual. So it's, yeah. Are you strong enough to do the activity you have deemed important to be strong at? However, we're defining that. Um, Amada, do you have anything?
1: No, I think that's, I think it covers that. Uh,
0: how would you prescribe or be mindful of when working with patients who have a history of overexercising or, uh, disordered behavior?
2: This is where you really want a team approach. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like that person, like you're going to need to be in contact with them in monitoring, um, a lot of what they're saying. And it, I, I have joked that in some regard, a lot of us who train all the time have some addictive personality disorders, because really like if you think going out and running 80 miles a week is quote unquote normal, like, you know, your shift is a little framed But in the same regard. If you think deadlifting four days a week is quote unquote normal, like, yeah, that's it, it's not just it may be normal to you, but in individuals yeah. who have a history of overexercising or disorder behavior, and I'm assuming this question is related more towards things that would drive an athlete towards relative energy deficiency syndrome. That's what I was thinking of female yeah. athlete triad. Like if if I'm suspicious of that, then I'm wanting to advocate for some like true specialized mental health counseling and likely a nutritionist involved. And Mm -hmm. I want all three components of that to be interacting with the athlete's best interest in mind. Like when you get to this level of complexity, like there, there needs to be people looking at the facets of this to which they are highly skilled and trained. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I think, yeah. Having that honest conversation with them, if you have their trust. I mean, I, I had that recently where I'm like, you know, if these, other parts are aren't in place, then what we're doing here probably doesn't have as much of a good benefit. Um, and like, you know, I'm willing to work with the team. So, but this is what the team needs to look like. And from our perspective, less is going to be more.
2: And I think yeah. there, like, it really is worth mentioning the, like, have you tried doing less phenomenon? Because, yeah. We get a lot of athletes that come in that have been to six different therapists who gave them the obligatory three exercises a piece, And now they're doing 18 rehab exercises on top of their training. Mm-hmm. And you're like, well, you know, we don't necessarily need this one to one ratio of perceived deficit by whatever certified rehab specialist. And muscle that needs to be worked, we can accomplish that by using a more global approach. Or, you know, maybe if you're trying to be an elite level powerlifter, you don't need to be in the gym seven days a week. That's also a possibility. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's a complex discussion. We we probably should really do, I think I've said this before, a podcast specific to like uh, Red S and stuff. Yeah,
1: bone bone health. Yeah.
0: Yes. Yeah. Uh, But I think that's a, a great answer, Derek. Next question, um, and this actually, like, we already answered this one, but the person just asked, when and where do you think rest and avoidance fits into EBM management plan? I wouldn't, uh, I probably wouldn't frame the word avoidance, but I would say maybe like a regression away from, or just we're going to briefly take this out just because uh, some of the connotations with like avoidance, but I have no issues of like deloading, so to speak, away from an activity or a movement if that situation deems it necessary, it doesn't need to be this thing where it's just like, ignore my experience, keep hammering away at this. And eventually this will just get better.
2: So I'm pretty notorious for saying right now, like we don't need to do this right now, but later yeah. I expect it to come back in and, you know, especially with me in background in the youth sports side of it. Um, I have questions about rest all the time and it really fits in well with the question above about overexercising and disordered behavior. Yeah. Once again, if you're swimming four hours a day and going to school and have homework and sleeping five hours a night, I don't give a damn what I do to quote unquote strengthen your shoulders. There are bigger fish that need fried yeah. and it like the conversation needs to involve sleep. Like I have an athlete on my schedule right now who like, we ended up having a really honest conversation because it got to the point where I could tell when he was taking tests and stressed at school because you could see an actual depreciation in load moved and complaints of symptoms. And it used to be, even at Florida, you know, we would have collegiate athletes or recreational athletes, and you could pretty much count on during finals week that there was going to be a spike in symptoms. It had nothing to do with anything like going on biomechanically. It's like, yeah, you're sleep deprived and under stress. So in those instances, like, Hey, maybe this week you should focus on sleep a little bit more than going to the gym and trying to squeeze in that extra workout.
0: Yeah. It's, it really is us advocating for a whole person approach. It's not just like, and this whole podcast has been about exercise prescription, but if you're not addressing, uh, to drive Derek's point home further, if you're not addressing whole person issues like sleep deprivation from quantity and quality standpoint, or what is, uh, adequate nutritional intake look like for them? What is life stressors and coping look like for them? Those are, are major variables that are, uh, discussion points that you can you know talk to them throughout this process. That would be to me an oversight if we didn't address those things, even, um, like from the data on persistent pain symptoms and sleep, like there's clearly a bi-directional relationship that's ongoing there. Uh, Sleep deprivation influencing your pain experience and then your pain experience influencing your sleep deprivation. Amato, you got anything else to add?
1: Yeah, kind of uh, similar to the previous conversation with the... uh, overexercising and disordered behavior. It's like if you, if you don't have those other variables in place, then the benefit you're going to get from the exercise prescription is not going to be as great. So like are you going to get a positive adaptation to that exercise stress or is that exercise stress just going to be another like negative stress for you?
0: Yeah, and and this could even be like programming in purposeful rest days uh, and because I, I think that's another variable that people don't often consider is just like, what is the uh, uh, frequency at which I'm doing, say, squat per week, and then how far part of the session space? spaced. Like those are easily like manipulated variables as well. Um, can because we'll, we'll wrap this up here shortly. Can you touch on exercise prescription during the post-rehab transition period?
2: I feel like I answered that pretty
0: thoroughly
1: earlier. Yeah, I think that's... It depends on, again, like desired activities, but like, are you actually doing fatiguing work at that point that represents what the activity is? And um, they're talking about how, like, you know, if they're that their practices are two hours or are their are rehab sessions looking like two hours. So it has to align with that.
2: Well, yeah, you know, think I also, think that's good, Mike.
0: Oh, no, I was, I was just going to say, like, uh, rehab, the, like, quote-unquote endpoint of rehab should be mimicking that post-rehab transition period. So it's just like a smooth, hopefully smooth transition.
2: Well, and I think it, it kind of bears mentioning to the athlete who's looking for a place to, and this is something I found with interviewing for jobs here. I think there's something to be said for the ratio of treatment table space to gym space in a rehab mm-hmm. facility. And if you go in and it's 25 treatment tables and 200 square foot of treatment space, you're probably not getting a very active approach in that clinic. And really, uh, I would say for the sports and orthopedic realm, or especially the sports realm, it, it should mimic much more of a gym. And this is where having some occasional specialized pieces of equipment really comes in handy. Like if you have a skier for a post-op knee patient, like you can get some cardio going pretty early on. And it it is having those means with which to train around an injury. And like, if your goal is to be getting back out on the field, you probably don't need to be sitting on a treatment table for 45 minutes. Yeah. That process
0: should look much more active.
1: Um, Yeah. When we, uh, I think it was last year we got rid of tre- two treatment tables to make room for a second squat rack. Uh, that sounds like a solid use
0: yeah. of uh, floor <laughs> space. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I think that's going to wrap everything up today. Hopefully this conversation has been beneficial for you. Uh, if at minimal, like seeing there's a lot of uh, gray in this discussion, but the prescription can be very much uh, specialized and specific to you, your goals, and return to activity. So there's much more to... Uh, just kind of like these general principles that I think are great if you're capable of self-managing, but it's also okay. If you feel like you need assistance, uh, you know, working with a trusted clinician and obviously shameless self-plug, we'd be happy to work with you as well. We offer pain and rehab consultations. Just go to barbellmedicine.com, click on the coaching tab. Our intake paperwork is at the bottom. Uh, Thank you, Mike and uh, Derek for the conversation today. And until next time, talk to you guys later.